1859, before a crowd of 25,000 people, Charles Blondin stepped out onto a tightrope strung across Niagara Falls. He was one of history's most famous rope dancers, as they were called in the day. And that day in June was a master performance. Not only did he walk the rope from side to side, he also ran on it, sat down on it, lay down on it, somersaulted along it. He carried out an old-timey camera on his back, 200 feet over the span, and snapped a picture of the crowd back behind him. He took out a small stove so that he could cook an omelet, lowering it to the passengers on the famous Made of the Mist boat below. This all really happened. If we saw David Copperfield or David Blaine or one of the many other famous David uh, magicians out there uh, doing it today, we'd assume that it was some sort of camera trick or special effect, but no, Charles Blondin was the real deal. In fact, you can go online and look at photographs of him performing some of these feats, including a picture of him carrying his manager, Harry Colcord, on his back from one side to another across the falls. It's reported that on one occasion, after carrying Harry across the rope, Blondin turned to a man in the crowd and asked him, do you think that I could do that with you? Of course, said the man, I just saw you do it. Well then, said Blondin, hop on and I'll carry you across. Not on your life, said the bystander. Smart guy. Psalm 115 is a song about trust. It compares the gods of this world to the God of heaven and confidently declares that Jehovah is not only trustworthy, but he is generous and caring and that he is giving his attention to you and your life today. Though many scholars feel that the song was written during a time of great national distress, by the time the music ends, any singer would have their hearts filled to the brim with joy and confidence and excitement about what God was up to and what was still to come that the Lord was going to continue his gracious, extravagant work in their midst, culminating ultimately to bringing us home to glory with him. But as we sing, the psalm gives us this image. While God's people are gathering together, singing the praises of his greatness outside, there's a crowd of unbelievers mocking the Lord, mocking his people. After all, they say, how could an invisible God really do anything? How are we to respond to a world that ridicules faith in the God of the Bible, ridicules faith in the unseen? More importantly, how can we, as believers, hang the weight of our lives full of very real difficulties and very real obstacles on a God that, in reality, we can't see with our own eyes? Now, Psalm 115 not only addresses these issues, it gives us assurance, and not only gives us assurance, it sends us on our way with that assurance, rejoicing and full of joy, so that the phrase, in God we trust, isn't just some tired slogan that we've heard so many times before, but it's something that we actually apply to the steps of our lives. And so we begin in verse 1, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your faithful love, because of your truth. This song is going to include requests for deliverance excitement about God's blessing in our lives, anticipation of our future eternity in heaven. But along the way, we're never to lose sight of the fact that all of this, all of these good things come from the Lord. He and he alone is the fount of all good. 
There's nothing in us that merits what God graciously gives. It's not payment for some service we've rendered to him. It's not owed to us. All the glory belongs to God because it is he who is sovereign. It is he who deserves all glory with none held back for anyone else. We notice there that they repeat the phrase twice, not to us. Have you ever had someone say thank you for something and then when you say, oh, don't mention it, they stop you and they, they, they lock eyes with you and they say, no, really, thank you. We're not used to that kind of sincerity, usually in our culture. And, and when somebody does something like that, you think, oh, they, they really mean it. They're not just saying it, they mean it. The singers here, as the psalm opens, truly want all glory to go to God. There's a sincerity in this opening line. You know, when a person gets saved, we're told that God starts doing a conforming work in that life. If you're a Christian here this morning, God is continually doing a work of conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. But as that work is ongoing, we admit that there's still a part of us that is uh, affected by sin. There's still that body of flesh that we wrestle with, and there's still part of us that wants glory for ourselves, glory of one kind or another. And so there's a fundamental change that needs to happen in our minds. In fact, humans have been so ruined by sin that the Bible says we need a new mind given to us, a new mind altogether. The Bible calls it the mind of Christ. And so right from the beginning, this moment of worship the singers jettison any desire for glory and instead offer their hearts to the Lord alone. They recognize that propensity within themselves to want some glory and to want what belongs to God, but instead they say, no, I want to give it all to the Lord. I want what he is rightfully due to be given to him. And that's one of the great reasons why we worship. Not only because God is worthy of our praise and deserves all of our adoration and all of that, not only because it's an overflow of our love and our thankfulness for him, but as we worship and sing and declare the great things that God has done and the, uh, the, all that he has accomplished on our behalf, it helps us to remember that it's not to us, but it's to him belongs all the glory. The opening of the song here also reminds us of God's love and his truth. These are not only aspects of who God is, not only pieces of his character and nature, but they are demonstrations of his incredible generosity. It is by God's mercy, his faithful love that we are not consumed. It is by his revealed truth that we are set free from bondage to sin. Now, some of you are probably starting to contemplate retirement or maybe have just entered into that phase of life. And maybe you're thinking about what you'll do once you've punched the clock for the very last time. And I was thinking about this and God there in the book of Genesis, it talks about the, all that he created and he, he, he accomplished this incredible work. And what it, it says that he saw that what he had done and that it was good. And so he rested. And so in a sense, you could have said that, well, God could have entered retirement there, right? And there are many, you know, people throughout human history we, who believed in what we might call deism, or they believed in a clockmaker God, that there, yes, of course, was a designer God, and he created the cosmos, but then having made it, he just sort of dusted his hands off and went into cosmic retirement somewhere. And so maybe you're thinking about, well, what am I going to do in my retirement? And so if we think about this from the Genesis perspective, God created the universe and then he finished it and accomplished it. Or even think of Jesus. He said on the cross, it is finished. And so now what is God doing with all of his ability and all of his power and all of uh, the, you know, the fact that he can do whatever he wants to do? 
Of course, he's outside of time and space, but what is God doing with his time? Well, it's an amazing thing. Though we can't fathom all the things God could be doing with what we would call his time, what has he decided to do? He's decided to be God with us, to interact with his creation, to be the God of mankind. Verse two says, why should the nation say, where is their God? The world asks this question. Sometimes they ask it as a taunt and an insult. Sometimes the world is asking it in anger and frustration. Like when people say, well, if God exists, why is there suffering? Why did this happen to my loved one? Or why is this going on or that going on? In a sense, they're asking, where is your God? From our perspective, there's sort of two ways to think about verse two. One is that it's a prayer to God. They say, God, why should the nations have reason to say, where is their God? Why don't you show yourself and, and magnify yourself in the world? Asking, himself, asking him to make himself known. And in Acts chapter four, we see a prayer like that. The disciples pray that God would do great and dramatic things in their midst so that the world would know that Jesus is Messiah. And that's a great prayer for us to continue today. But we can also see verse two as a rhetorical question because the fact of the matter is any objective observer has to admit there is a God outside of our universe. There's someone who has designed, someone who intervenes, there's a God who has revealed himself when he came in human flesh, lived, died, and rose again. The Bible says that God's invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through that which he has made. And we can see the miraculous work of God of providence in every generation and in every place throughout human history. And so... As an objective observer of history and science and all of the other ways that we could look at this world and look at, his, and look at the experience of humanity, there really isn't a reason for human beings to say, where, the, where is their God? He's been clearly seen. But here's a simple answer to the question here in verse 3. It says, our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. There's a sureness in this declaration, a firmness. We recognize here that God is not just some sort of force. He's a person. He's really alive. He is really in heaven. And he really is in charge. No one can outmaneuver him. No one can overthrow him. No one can hide from him. No one can lay a hand on him or remove him from his throne. And he does whatever he pleases. What does God please to do? Again, we think for a moment of all that God could be doing right now. And then we examine what the Bible says brings him pleasure. The Bible says it pleases God to interact with us. First Kings 3. It pleases him to deal with the, promise, uh, for, with the problem of sin. Isaiah. It pleases him to watch sinners repent. It pleases him to adorn his people with salvation. It pleases him to be with you. Pleases God to hold every atom of the universe together by his power, to raise up kingdoms and put down kingdoms, to change times and seasons in order to accomplish his unstoppable plan of grace in our lives and in this world. And so while the world is mocking or ignoring, this is what God is doing. And that's a wonderful thing. So now let's look for a moment at their gods. Verse four, their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throats. 
Modern man may see himself as much more sophisticated than these ancient pagans who bowed down to statues of silver and gold, but the gods they worship today are just as, as powerless and just as silly on an eternal level. Even in the New Testament, in the book of uh, 1 John, he says, hey, beware of idols. And so we may think, well, no, you know, modern man isn't bowing down to little idols, but there's still idols that are set up by um, humans and by societies and, and by those who do not want to go God's way. And so what are the gods of today? Martin Lloyd-Jones gives a helpful definition of what idolatry or what gods might be. It's, he says, a man's God is that for which he lives, for which he is prepared to give his time, his energy, his money, that which stimulates him and rouses him, excites him and enthuses him. I find that to be a helpful definition. And so today, the gods of man are often possessions or systems that make the promise of security or a better world. Yet they are just as powerless as a statue made out of silver that tarnishes or gold that melts, especially when it comes to uh, addressing real spiritual problems in the heart of human beings. One, not a great example, but one example that came to mind was that in 2013, our government, the U.S. government, spent $2 billion to build a website, healthcare.gov, and that website promised, right, a system by which we would have a healthier future for anyone and everyone in America. That was the idea. That was the effort that was, you know, fought over and they spent tons of money to get it passed and all this stuff. It was this huge effort, uh, political effort. Uh, we might even call it a political idol. Its performance at launch was so abysmal that only six people in the entire country were able to sign up on the first day. Two billion dollars spent, not to mention the you know, many years of, of, of effort put into getting all of that done. Six people. As a political idol, that was just like what's being described in verses four through seven. And, and here's the thing. If your God can be stolen or conquered or if your God's servers can crash, or if your God can be voted out of power, then what sort of a God is that? The Hulk was right when he said it was a puny God. That's the deal. Now we can contrast the gods of this world in, in verses four through seven with the God of the Bible beat by beat through each point. And we can look at what the Bible says about our God and compare it to the false gods here and compare them. Our God was not fashioned out of materials mined from the earth like silver and gold. He made creation from nothing. Our God does speak, unlike them. He speaks life into existence. He speaks commands to his people. He speaks kindness to the undeserving. Our God sees everything. His eyes roam to and fro with nothing hidden from his gaze. We're told he never takes his eyes off of us at any moment. Our God also hears. He hears our prayers and our praises. He's listening for us, even for our groanings. He hears cries for help and calls for justice. Hearing the cries of the needy, he brings comfort. Our God even smells. Our praises rise like incense to him, bringing him pleasure, and the smoke of his wrath billows from his nostrils, the word says. His hand is mighty to save and is placed in loving care on each one of his people. His hands are open to receive us. With his feet, he walks with us and he lights our way along our path. With his voice, he comforts and supports and he roars in victory. And with his voice, he thunders his decrees. He speaks and it is done. Verse eight continues. Those who make those idols are just like them as are all who trust in them. 
Ultimately, those who serve some other God end up the same as those idols, tarnished, vulnerable, dead, and wasted. Listen, if you're not a Christian, you are headed toward this same end. If we look back as, you know, students of history, it's easy for us to say, okay, well, there's really not a lick of difference between Ra and Baal, between Zeus and Ganesh. But the truth is, there's no difference between any of those false gods and any modern system that people try to hang the weight of their lives upon. Any modern system or possession or ideal where they say, well, this will lead to a better life. This will lead to purpose in life. If it's outside the God of the Bible and faith in Jesus Christ, they're the same thing. There's no difference between Vishnu and what men blasphemously call the almighty dollar. Not when it comes to eternal things. If your God is not outside time and space, you've got a real problem because this life will soon be over and you are going to stand before your creator and you're going to be judged. And Jesus Christ has invited all men everywhere and said, I want, I want that judgment to fall on me at the cross so that you can be saved from the guilt of your sin. So that when God looks at you at the end of your life, he sees you covered in my blood, washed clean. And he says, you're not to be judged and sent to hell. You're going to be sent into an eternity in heaven to receive the inheritance that belongs to my son. That's what the Lord wants. Verse nine says, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He's their help and shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. Bible commentator James Montgomery Boyce writes, if God tells us something once, we should listen very carefully because he's God. If he says something twice, we should pay the most strict attention. How then if he repeats something three times? Well, in that case, we should drop everything else we are doing, give our full attention to, study, ponder, memorize, meditate on, and joyfully obey what God has said. Trust the Lord, told three times in rapid succession. In the Bible, to trust means that we are to boldly, confidently make God our refuge. Jesus talked about a, a man building his house upon the rock versus building his house upon the sand. We're told to hang the weight of our lives on him as protector and provider, to rely on his guidance for our courses and our choices. Probably some of you uh, broke out the ladder and went into the attic and got down the Christmas stuff and then took that ladder out front to hang Christmas lights this weekend. You probably were carrying weight that you shouldn't have been carrying on that ladder and twisting in weird ways with the staple gun. That's what I was doing this weekend. But it goes without saying that you trusted that ladder fellows to hold you up. Even if the, you know, it says do not exceed this weight limit, Right. And you probably even trusted that second to last rung on the ladder, even though there's a big sticker that says, don't stand on this one. Then why is it there? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Not supposed to step on it. Just remove it if you don't want me to step on it. But it goes without saying, you know what? Those of you who did that this weekend, or if you're planning on doing it, here's what you didn't do. You didn't go out back and uh, among your raking with all the leaves and everything come down, find a bunch of twigs and, and get some string and rubber bands and make a ladder for yourself and say, okay, that will hold me up. Well, that'd be silly and insane. Instead, you grabbed your ladder and you thought, of course, this ladder's going to hold me up. I may be doing stupid things on it, but it's going to hold me up. If I fall off, it's probably going to be my fault, not the ladder's fault. That's the idea. Trust the Lord. 
believe that he is going to hold the weight of your lives and that he will protect and provide and he can guide and show us the way to go. Now, as we see here in Israel, there were different levels of separation among God's people. They're delineated in these verses. You have, on the one hand, the nation, and then within the nation, you have the priests, and then you also have the God-fearers who weren't ethnic Jews but had joined in with their assembly. And under the law of Moses, there were distinct rules and privileges for each group. Now, Jesus Christ has brought us into a new covenant, and all those walls of separation and distinction have been broken down. And now we are all together one big, happy spiritual family, a single generation of royal priests. It doesn't matter if you work behind a pulpit or a pipe fitter, all have been unified in grace and purpose. And so we look at this, not thinking, well, I'm part of this group or you're part of that group. It all applies to us. And applying it to us, we are reminded that God is not simply to be acknowledged, but he's to be trusted. We're to hang the weight of our personal lives, hang the weight of our nation, hang the weight of our ministry on the Lord, going his way, accepting his will for our lives, and recognizing that really he is the help that we need for our nation. He is the help that we need for our ministry, for our personal lives. And not only is he our help, he is our shield. In battle, of course, it's the shield that sustains the blows, guarding the one behind it. Instead of you taking the impact from the sword or the arrow, the shield does for you. In the animated film, How to Train Your Dragon, one of the old Viking warriors is training young recruits in how to fight and defend themselves against the attacks of their fire-breathing foes. And he says this, your most important piece of equipment is your shield. If you must make a choice between a sword or a shield, take the shield. And that's good advice for our spiritual lives as well. With God as our help and our shield, we don't need to pay attention to the noise of the world. They may be singing their songs of derision. They may be making their threats. They may be throwing their arguments. And we don't need to worry about that noise. Whether it's mocking or threatening, we can persevere in confidence because we know that our God is real. He is true. He is trustworthy and he is with us. And as we saw in our study of Psalm 138 last week, we need not be afraid of any foe, whether earthly or supernatural, because our God is with us and for us and shields us with his limitless love and strength. Verse 12, the Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. God had given the nation of Israel covenant promises for physical blessings. This is one of the reasons why we know that the church has not replaced Israel. Because we have a different set, a different kind of blessings promised to us in the New Testament. Now, God is not going to cancel out those promises that he made to Israel. But to us in the church age, different promises are made. When God speaks to us about the blessings he intends for our lives... They aren't for physical health and wealth. Rather, the promises are spiritual and eternal in nature. For example, we learn in the New Testament that God blesses his people with spiritual growth and the development of spiritual fruit. And with that fruit, we bless others and build up the church. We're told that God promises to bless us with wisdom and insight for living and with increased faith and expanding joy and a greater capacity to serve people and endure hardship a greater capacity to bring honor to God. 
We also find that God's blessing for us include a future eternal plan, one where we inherit the kingdom and see God and receive heavenly rewards once this life has come to an end. So those are the blessings for a New Testament believer. God's heart has not changed. As he remembers Israel, he's going to remember you and I. Jesus promised that he would never leave us or forsake us. Instead, he busies himself in a constant effort to accomplish his unbreakable promises for us. And those promises will not only be kept to a certain few who seem significant or important from our way of looking at things, they will be kept to all, both small and great alike. What a great promise, not just for Israel, but for us as well. We think so often in terms of who's great, who's important, who's done big things, who hasn't. It's the same thing the disciples did as they walked with Jesus. They're walking along the road. They start arguing among, about who's the greatest, right? And Jesus turns to them and says, hey, what are you talking about? Got real quiet. Got real quiet all of a sudden because they recognize, that, yeah, they shouldn't be arguing about that. But it highlights the fact that even as believers, sometimes we think, yeah, but I'm not great in, in the work of God or in the plan of God. And what do we see? The heart of God here, all the way back in Psalm 115, the small and the great alike. God is not a respecter of persons in that way. He just is looking for faithfulness. He's looking for a heart that loves him. He's looking for someone who's willing to go his way and he wants to bless all of them. Verse 14 says, may the Lord add to your numbers, both yours and your children's. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Scholars tell us that the language used here indicates that God heaps blessings on his people, piles of them. The Lord isn't stingy or withholding. He is extravagant in his gifts and kindness toward us. And there's an important contrast here. Israelites were all too familiar with the gods of Canaan, which demanded that people burn their own children in sacrifice. Same thing, of course, happens so often today. The gods of this world are just as demanding. And we see people sacrificing children on altars of convenience or career or whatever it might be. But then we see the God of the Bible who loves you and loves your children invites the whole family to be brought together in a life of hopeful faith and filled with spiritual blessings. He's a God who lavishes love on a thousand generations. He's not some sort of God who's only effective at harvest time. So many of the pagan gods in history have been like that. Well, these are the gods of this harvest. This is the God of the sea, and this is the God of this or that. He's not just a God who's only useful in harvest time. He's not a God who's only... Uh, powerful in certain geographic locations. I love that one passage in the Old Testament, enemies of Israel coming to fight them. They go fight the armies of Israel. The enemies are wiped out and they say, okay, well, that, that must be, their God must be a God of the hills. So let's go fight in the valley. And then they're wiped out again. They're, they're trying to find a geographic location where God doesn't have power because that's how their gods worked. But God is always God everywhere. And you know, thinking of this in a modern context, our God is not only effective for four years at a time. He's always powerful, always king, always working. Verse 16 says, the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the human race. As we trust God and go his way, he then trusts us to steward the world. He has given it to us as a gift that we might enjoy it and live in it and use it. And along with that, we have a responsibility to tend it as God would. He has shared dominion with us because he is generous and because he wants us to be about his business. And so we should approach our relationship to the physical world in a godly way, which means prioritizing compassion towards people, not being needlessly wasteful and cherishing this wonderful creation that God has made. Verse 17, 
It is not the dead who praise the Lord, nor any of those descending into the silence of death, but we will bless the Lord both now and forever. Hallelujah. This is not suggesting soul sleep or that there's no worship in heaven, much the contrary. It's simply saying that for this life, once we die, we no longer offer God praise here on the earth. And so the opportunities and responsibilities for worshiping God and giving him glory and doing his work and spreading his word, those things are for the living. And because of that, the song ends with a loud call of hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. Or we might think of it as, okay, let's get to it. Let's do what God has called us to do. We're to be like all of those people involved in passing the Olympic torch, keeping it aflame in all these places, through all kinds of climates and all sorts of terrains. We are to see what God has done for us and in response, turn around and bless him back. Of course, we can't bless him the way he blesses us. We cannot do for him what he has accomplished on our behalf, but we can turn back and bless the Lord with loving, obedient, joyful hearts, full of praise and confidence. Verse 17 gives us one more thing to think about, sort of a way for us to judge whether we are spiritually dead or not. Because to be spiritually alive means we not only believe God and trust him, but that we are praising him, blessing him, diverting the flow of our lives to bring him glory. And so a question each of us can ask ourselves is, all right, am I on an ascending path leading to heaven or am I on some descending road leading to death? All around us, there is difficulty and darkness and not to mention the jeers of the unbelieving world. We can still be sure that God is good and that he is with us and that we can trust him. When Charles Blondin invited his manager, Harry Colcord, out onto uh, his back for what seemed an impossible journey, he gave his manager the following instructions, uh, instructions according to the Smithsonian Magazine. He said, look up, Harry. You are no longer Colcord. You are Blondin. Until I clear this place, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. What a great thing to think about as the Lord invites us to trust in him. God invites us to rest securely in him on this death-defying walk from shore to shore. He can do what no other God can do. He can and will deliver us across. And so we wanna be people who don't simply watch with the crowd. We wanna be people who join him in the fantastic, bringing him glory through the offering of our lives. He's ready to take us on. He can be trusted both now and forever. Hallelujah.